0: Friction. This is the podcast where we get a little uncomfortable, a little awkward on our journey of healing through mindfulness and becoming self aware. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today I have with me David from the Surviving Abuse podcast, and I'm very excited because this is a continuation of a conversation that he and I have previously had, but it is on the flip side. So David is going to be interviewed by me, and if you want to check out the other interview on his podcast, where he interviewed me and I gave a little bit of my background, my story, my history of trauma, and where I am today, you definitely should check out his podcast, The Surviving Abuse Podcast. David, I'll allow you to introduce yourself.
1: Hi, Danny. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad we reconnected. You were one of my favorite people to spend some time with. Um, Gosh, it's been... Maybe a month and a half now, two months
0: already. Somehow, <laughs> already, yeah,
1: yeah. Well, um, for an introduction, my name is David. Like you said, and I'm the host of Surviving Abuse Podcast, and we dive into some very heavy, deep, dark stuff. But I try to show that there's life after trauma, and that we can we can laugh, and we can grow, and develop, and And use the negative things that has happened to us into a positive way. I live in Knoxville, Tennessee, in the United States. So I'm a Southern boy. Um, And being an open gay man in the South can sometimes have its obstacles.
0: Yes. uh, I can't even imagine, to say the least, again, Canadian here. So it's a very different kind of climate in every single aspect. David, I really want to hear your story and why you're in front of me. Why are you so passionate about this? Why do you want to help others get to where you finally are on the other side of trauma?
1: Sure. So um, like I said, I'm an open gay man. I am 40 years old. And I Growing up, I was very blessed. I had the family, the mom and the dad that set me down when I was 18 years old and, and said, you know, David, you're, you're gay. Be who you are. Build a relationship with God. Let, you know, let us be a part of your life because if you don't. You're robbing us for knowing all of you and you're robbing yourself as well. And not very many gay people have that. And so I'm very I'm very blessed with it. So the reason I say that is because, of course, growing up, we had our trials and tribulations, but it was never centered around being gay. And so I didn't know hate existed, right? Like, I mean, I would watch TV, I would watch movies, I would hear these things, but I just thought... What was on TV was fiction, and that it wasn't real. Uh, I was a server and a bartender through college, so I was a bartender for about ten years. And of course, if someone's steak came out wrong, or if their mashed potatoes came out cold, they would have no other thing to call me to insult me but the f word. But if I was a woman, I would be the b word. If I, you know, you know, like, so I never really. Was offended by that. It just showed me their ignorance, and I had so much love and support that that never really played a big effect on me. Until seven years ago, it was the week of Halloween. I was going through a breakup, and some friends called me and was like, "You know, get pretty, get out of the house. Let let's go out and have some cocktails. Let's go have some fun." And there's this little karaoke bar that we were frequent flyers at, you know, it was kind of like our cheers. Everybody knew us and we knew them, you know, um, I walked in and, you know, I would get on stage and sing my songs and, and I do not hide that I'm gay. Like I love female country artists. I would get on stage and sing Shania Twain, Men I feel like a woman and the men were singing along with me and buying me a beer afterwards. It wasn't a thing, you know, uh, but it, but it is predominantly a straight bar and a lot of the story is going to be based on um, surveillance camera evidence, uh, witness evidence, and what has kind of been put together at this point. And I want to give a trigger warning because there again are some 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 heavy stuff. But apparently there was a man there that uh, was discharged from the military and did not live in Knoxville. Was uh, kind of driving through, and he saw me, and he didn't like me. Um. The surveillance cameras show that my that I went to the bathroom, uh, left my friends, went to the bathroom, and this man stopped me to talk to me. And it looked like a pleasant three-minute conversation, you know? Uh, th- there was no audio, but of course, bars are loud. But, you know, it didn't look like I was intimidated or, or being harassed. I actually gave him a business card. That's how pleasant the conversation looked. Well, of course, my business card has all my information. So I go to the bathroom uh, by myself. I come back, walk right past him. Surveillance show all this. Uh, my friends and I we pay our tab and we leave. And surveillance cameras show that three minutes later he laughed. And the next thing I know, I my body is found eighteen hours later. I had been brutally raped uh, by his body and foreign objects in my home um, for multiple hours. And was left for dead he thought he killed me so how my body was found is the the guy that that attacked me I always refused to use his name so I call him my attacker my attacker uh, took my cell phone and was standing over my body calling the mother of his children um, confessing to what he had done and that I was flopping like a fish out of water um, he said that my eye, that my lips were turning blue and I stopped moving. And so that's when he stole my car, my money, and my credit cards and left and went to another bar and uh, started drinking. While he was at that bar, allegedly he starts confessing to other Patreons about the F word that he just killed. They kick him out of the bar. That's it. They don't call the cops or anything. They just have him leave. So he gets in my car that he has stolen, drunk, and wrecks my car. When the cops come to the scene, he confesses to murder. So they arrest him, of course, and they go to the address that was on my ID, but I had just recently moved. So my ID and information wasn't updated, which is why it took 18 hours for them to find my body. When they And when they impounded my car and they started searching my car, they found my apartment lease in one of the pockets of my seats. And um, that is how they found me, assuming they were coming in to a deceased corpse. Um, the detective says that they were at pronouncing me dead and my foot moved. And they realized that I was not dead at that moment. Um, I was rushed to the emergency room, spent some time there. And then I couldn't live in my apartment. I had to learn how to walk again. I had temporary amnesia. Um, and and let me back up. I said I had to learn how to walk again. And I don't, I mean that as drastic as it sounds. However, I wasn't paralyzed. And, it, you know, it, it wasn't one of those cases. It was just that <clears throat> my the nerve damage and stuff that I had, I had to regain control. And reteach myself how to have control of my own muscles and, and, and body. Because going into my apartment um, looked like a crime scene. There was, I mean, it, it was definitely a crime scene. But it looked like one of those, like, murder movies. When, when you see the claw marks down the walls. And blood on splattered up the walls. It definitely looked like that. There was even wooden stuff under my nails. where I, When I kept coming to. And he was moving my body from room to room where I was just trying to grab a hold of something, you know, to, to secure myself. So, you know, I, um, I am an open book and you can ask any questions. I do want to say that again, I have no memory. So the resources I also have to take with a grain of salt, right? Because no one witnessed the actions. And so the actions are based on the confession that he later made in court during trial. So I don't even know what all is a fact or not, which is terrifying within itself.
0: Okay. First I'm very emotional for you. Um, Hearing the way that you are speaking and recalling and just, I hear this very monotone voice, which is so natural when you are recalling and speaking of these events. But I can see in your body language and I can see in your face, just it's gotten to a point. It's been how many years that it is almost an slightly outer body experience when you go to just explain all of this to someone again. It's it almost feels like a few degrees of separation. And as someone who can sit here and I can listen and just feel those feelings for you and I get emotional. I know sometimes people immediately are like, well, how can you discuss such a sensitive topic and recall and explain what happened to you and not have that sense of emotion? And I think a lot of people who've gone through traumatic events, there just gets to a point where, especially in your circumstance, where the trauma is so deep that there's there's no memory. There's no part of it that you are actually going to be able to recall. It just becomes like another limb. Like It's just part of you and it just exists and you're just so used to it being a part of you that it's not that those emotions aren't there and that they don't surface on a regular basis and you don't go through those waves of grief and sorrow all over again but you've learned to deal with it being a part of you because it doesn't go away and that was one of our big takeaways when you and I did our previous recording in our talk it's just it doesn't go away it's an extension of you. It's now become a part of you. And sometimes people get a little bit confused by that who haven't been through traumatic experiences. They don't understand how we can just talk about it so blatantly and normally. So what I really want to ask you about like that entire realm is it's been seven years. However, where do you feel like you currently are? In your process, in your healing, and all of it.
1: I, I feel like I'm in a good place. I um am very adamant on therapy and I'm an advocate for therapy. I that is one of the things that this that the state did for me that was such a blessing, is they immediately put me in therapy that was covered through the victim's compensation. And I still to this day, every Monday, go to sexual assault group therapy for men. So to, to kind of ride your coattails of the response that you were just making, it was beautifully sad because I've had several people say, you know, you, you speak of this as if it's nothing, as if you're telling me a, a TV show. And that's kind of what it's like because I don't remember. I'm, I'm, I'm ha- it's like a scavenger hunt. I'm having to put together these pieces of things that all these people are telling me about me. And, and it also kind of becomes a little rehearsed because, you know, for seven years in therapy, I've been saying it. So I know what words to use to get my point across, but I also know my triggers to where I stay away from certain phrases or certain things because I do know my triggers and I know that I could say something in a certain way that would bring that emotion on. So it's just, I've had to relearn myself. There was a brand new me. There was a victim David that I did not sign up for that i i didn't ask for and and frankly that i didn't want (laughs) but but you know i was put on a path and and then from there i get to choose do do i do i stay a victim or do i become a survivor and you know and so so to to answer your question a little bit as to where i am today i have breaking points it interferes with my job sometimes you know, it interferes with me at the grocery store. There are times that I will be at the grocery store and I will see a man with a beard and chills will run through me. And I think, is that him? Because that's all I really remember is a beard. You know, the beard being such a trigger point that when I was able to move back into my home and and be independent, when I had the um, Xfinity come out to install my internet and cable, I looked out the peephole and it was a man with a beard there to install it. And I screamed at him and made him leave my home and called comcast and was like you cannot do this and tried to blame them when when they had no idea and that poor man you know he's probably like what the hell just happened (laughs) you know god love him and and you know when i called my mom very upset and she reached out to comcast and tracked down this guy and was like look please don't take offense you know because what if he had PTSD? What if he had triggers? You know, it becomes an endless cycle. And it's been and it's brought me very aware of that with people, you know, I used to get so easily offended by people, especially when I was bartending, if they came up and they were not as polite as I, I would get so offended. And and then I realized, you know, through this journey that, you know, maybe it's not me. <laughs> You know, and I, I do think that I'm in a good place. I, that is one of the reasons why I wanted to start my, my show is because I have been very proactive in my own health and my own growth and my own being, And, and I wanted to pay that forward in order for me to not let what happened to me be in vain. Then I have to make something good come out of it and darn it, I'm doing it and it's working, you know, <laughs>
0: It is. And I sincerely hope that you are very proud of yourself for even just the way that you are speaking in terms of compassion. You immediately were horrified by your trigger, which to no fault of your own, to the point where you felt so deeply that your mom helped you to pass along that compassion. And the fact that you said, Well, what if he had triggers? What if he, like, you immediately realized just the way the world works and how similar we actually all really are and what makes us human are moments like this. Unfortunately, these horrific moments are what show us how human we really are. And something I really want to ask you, and I like that you brought up how you were before when you were a bartender, Um, you know, this changed you. 100% it changed you. And I know we don't want the change. We definitely don't like having to grieve who we were, but I want to ask you about that process. I want to ask you what it was like for you realizing, being told what had happened to you, processing, grieving, and now looking back at, okay, that's who I was as a person. Then who am I now?
1: You know, that, that journey, um, was hard and it still kind of is sometimes luckily I, I've learned and, and started loving the the new me, but, it, but it took some time. So, cause here's the thing. I, like I mentioned earlier, I didn't really know hate existed. Right. I have always been a small guy. I, my hospital records say that when I was brought into the emergency room, um, from my attack, I weighed 130 pounds and, um, five, nine. So, you know, I've never been a crazy big guy, but I got so depressed. I got down to 98 pounds to the point of people would see me and think that there was a drug problem and not a mental health, physical attack problem. You know, I have always liked the way that I've dressed. I would dress kind of loud and, and, and I wouldn't dress, flamboyant as, like, wearing women's clothes, but flamboyant as in, like, color and patterns and things like that. But then I stopped. I didn't want to be seen anymore. My friends would look at me when we were out together. My friends would look at me at certain times, and they would say, this is when you usually would make a joke about something, and now you're not because I was the funny one. But I didn't want to be seen. I wanted to hide in a corner and sit in silence. And that is... The complete opposite of who I am. I the way, the way that I looked at things and the way that my mind worked at the time in the beginning is I walked in a room and someone didn't like how confident I was. They didn't like how flamboyant I was. They didn't like how open I was or that I accepted myself and that people accepted me and they wanted me dead because of it. Somebody hated to look at me so much that they wanted me dead and almost succeeded you know and and so it became a defense mechanism of if i dress in darker clothes or or if i dress without color or without a fashion statement and if i didn't bring attention to myself if i don't get on stage and sing if i don't make jokes if if i can just be here for a head count but not here as a purpose or as a person then i'll be okay and when my memories started coming back to me and and the person that I used to be started coming back to me. And, you know, people, people want to talk bad about social media sometimes, but you know how like Facebook will give you that reminder of five, five years ago today you were doing this. Well, that was such a blessing to me in the beginning because it was reminding me of things and people, you know, it was even the little things I didn't remember. Like when, um, when I moved back to my apartment, and I got everything, my internet and everything hooked back up, I realized that I love Days of Our Lives. I've watched Days of Our Lives for 30 years. I forgot that. And when I turned on my TV and my DVR was telling me that I had three months' worth of Days of Our Lives to watch, I was like, oh, I guess I like this. You know, it was just those little things, like even tasting something for the first time and and remembering, you know, some story behind it or smelling something for the first time. You know, like I even had to learn how to my therapist had to teach me how to redefine things like this is an emotion that is happy. This is what you feel when you're happy. And so, you know, this is the word that you put to it. It was like I was, was newborn again, you know, but it was so hard because I wanted to hide in the shadows when I used to be the sun you know, and I wouldn't cast a shadow on anybody. I wanted everybody to have their moment. I wanted everybody to have their time and I wanted to be a part of that with them. And I became somebody that my friends couldn't even recognize, you know? Um, it has been, I've learned to have fun with it. And, and when I start to remember something that I have forgotten, uh, you know, like I, I start to have fun with it. Like I always make jokes about my age and because I'm terrified of getting older, oh, I'm not terrified of getting older. I'm terrified of looking old. So, <laughs> so I always make jokes about, oh, you know, it's my 40 year old mind kicking it. You know, just trying to be silly. But, but you know, those jokes and stuff are starting to come back to me. But I, I steered away from so much of what was my foundation. You know, I, I, it, it was like it was built on sand. It it came crumbling down one day and, and I had to rebuild it. And, and it was, and it is scary sometimes, you know, but, but I've learned to enjoy the process.
0: There's quite a few things here that I want to unpack because I think that I can see the liveliness in you and I can only imagine what you were like, but you just seem right now, like such a wise, loving charismatic person who I feel this sense of you're not ashamed of what happened to you. And that really translates through when you're speaking and you're talking and you can make jokes and you're so present for people. And I think that's very admirable after everything that has happened. How do you, how do you manage these triggers and still be true to yourself but also take care of that inner David that needs to be nurtured, because your entire joy, your entire being, was stolen from you. And that's exactly the words that you you spoke to me before. You like, you had your entire joy stolen from you. How do you manage those triggers now? It it's been seven years, but they're still going to happen. So how do you how do you manage them and still find joy and still be charismatic? Because some days that just feels impossible
1: absolutely some days it, it sure does and one one of the best medicines that i've found for myself is i like every other human being i want to be the one in control right and so when i start to have this trigger i could blame him and be like i'm having this trigger that i can't control because of what this guy did to me or i can say i'm having this trigger and I'm not going to let it get the best of me because that just means he won again. So I have to kind of play this game in my head, you know? And when when you told me that, when you said that you get the sense that I'm not ashamed of what happened to me, and I'm not, um, because of that, I'm also not ashamed to apologize when I have a trigger to people that might have to suffer from that in the moment. If I'm at work and and I get hot-headed for a minute or, or in my relationship now if, if something happens and i and, and i fuss for a few minutes i'm not afraid to come back and say look guys i was in a moment and i apologize i'm not afraid to recognize it and me recognizing it and apologizing for it is just building my strength and just building my team around me to even learn how to handle me and and even for them to learn what my triggers are because they're not going to go away. You know, yes, we said it's been seven years. and That seems like a long time, but, but when you think of it this way, it's a long time for everyone else. The way that I like to describe it is when, when someone passes away, you usually have family with you for three days, you know, and, and I t- I use my grandmother, for example, because that's how I really learned it. When my grandfather passed away, For three days, the family was just swarming her. The phone didn't stop ringing. There were people staying all night at her house. She really didn't have a chance to mourn. Well, then when the dust settled for everyone else and we had buried him and everyone else was going on with their life and going back to work, my grandmother woke up and she made two cups of coffee. There's not two people anymore. You know, The dust settled for everyone else, but it didn't settle for her yet. And she hadn't had time to. So when, when you think about that as far as me and what I went through, I didn't have memory. I had to learn how to walk again. I was having to focus on my physical recovery, then my mental recovery before I could even start on my emotional recovery. And then you have to think. I had to go to court and face the man and be in the same room with the man day in and day out for a year. I had to relive this for a year. So when you take the year that it took me to physically, emotionally, and mentally be somewhat in control, and then a year of facing him in court during trial and everything, we're now down to it's only been five years. And I still haven't got to go through all the process because all those wounds were being rehashed and reopened every day. The dust has not got to settle for me. What's, what is seven years to everyone else is yesterday to me. And it, I'm sure you can probably relate to that too with, with, with the trauma that you've been through. The dust just does not settle. It doesn't get a chance to. And I've even had people say, my God, David, it's been seven years. Like, Are you ever going to get over this? No, I'm not someone came into my body without permission someone is on the tip of my tongue his name is on the tip of my tongue every day and i don't know him his fingerprints are all over my home and my 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 body i can't wash him away and it's disgusting but it it's got to be I mean, it, it, there, there's no way around it. It's the path that I'm on now and I get to choose how I handle it. And and I'm trying my, my darndest to do it in the most positive way. But of course, there are going to be times that I break.
0: Have you had any kind of prolific moments in your healing journey where things just clicked for you to heal mentally and emotionally? I think that when I think of my own there's very, very specific moments that when I realized I was in control of my own life again, or when I realized I was finally safe in my own body again, what moments did you experience? And what were those prolific moments that you'd like to share?
1: You know, I had to learn how to test myself a lot. Um, I remember, uh, it was was before my partner and I got together. We've been together going on four years now. And so I had like a year or so of of dating once I was at a, a healthier place in my life, right? And so this guy had, we actually met because he had followed my story. My story became very public. And so we had met and carried on conversation. And then we got to where... Uh, I, I felt comfortable enough to go to his home and, and to have dinner. So I was in this new place with this new person. And we were having a glass of wine in the kitchen while he was still, you know, preparing food. And you know how sometimes you will shut a cabinet door and it shuts too hard? That He did that. And it triggered me. And with being in a new surrounding and in a new place... And hearing that, my my therapist and I seem to think that the reason why that kind of sound is a trigger to me is where my head was, and trigger warning, but where my head was being beaten into cabinets and walls, that's what it sounded like. And so it became a very familiar sound to me. And I flipped out. I had to leave his home. You know, and of course, he's calling me and he's worried and he doesn't know what happened. And... That was one of the first times that I had to accept the fact that I have triggers and accept the fact that I have triggers that are going to be noticed and that could embarrass me. And I had to figure out how I was going to control that, how I was going to now drive this car. So finally, after the fourth or fifth call, I answered the phone and I assured him that it was not anything that he had done. And I, you know, I said, it was just something about the sound of the cabinet. And, and I just couldn't do it. And that's when I became, when, when I started realizing that I could apologize, and that sense of relief that I felt when I apologized. And it was almost like it was like I was accepting who this new David was, you know, or is. And that the control I felt with just accepting my new journey was. Very eye opening for me. And then you know, through therapy, I was learning different different things. Like uh, my therapist asked me, "Where do you feel the safest? Like where do you have the where do you feel the most enjoyment?" And my answer, (laughs) funny enough, was the bathroom. I could shut myself up in a small room. I could turn on my music, and I could see. And know everything that was happening in that room, that was the restroom. That was where I could go. And if the door was shut, no one else could come into. That's where I felt safe. That's where I could take off my clothes and cleanse my body. That's where, without without feeling violated again, you know, I became ashamed of my body because I got down to 98 pounds. Um, People walked into the room at the hospital when the nurse was giving me a rape exam. The rape test. You know, I kept getting violated. I there was pictures of me shown all over the states that I didn't approve to be to be shared. Um, the social media, or not the social media, the the news. They tried to get a um, a confession or a statement from me, and I was unable to talk. So they went to the courthouse and got a copy of the confession from my attacker. My attacker says. Gay man uh, hit on me, proper or sexually propositioned me, and I beat him up. So the media releases: gay man goes to straight bar, takes straight man home for sex, and gets beat up. So I start getting death threats, and people wanted to find me and finishing the job because they were blaming me. They were blaming the victim, and so I. Didn't really feel safe anywhere, but I found that in my bathroom I did. There was um, a window, but it was frosted, so light could come in, but no, but we, I couldn't see out. I felt so safe in that room, and my therapist told me she said use that room even when you're not, you know, using the room for what it's for. Use it for your your safe place. And so I would go in there daily, and there was a list of songs that I would karaoke to that were positive to me, that made me happy. And then I got to where I would open up the door, and I would spend time in there with the door open. And then I would do that for a week. And then the next week I would go into my bedroom because my bedroom and bathroom were conjoined, of course. And so I would start out in the bathroom and then I would move to the bedroom and sing a song. And then the next week I went into the next room and the next room until finally one day I was able to enjoy my full home and felt safe in my full home. And what's um, not necessarily funny, but I can't help but giggle at it a little bit, is when I was moving (laughs) out of that apartment I, you know, we're taking furniture and everything apart, and I was finding knives under bed mattresses, under pillows, under throw rugs, under cushions, Um, and once I saw those, I remembered that when I came home that first night by myself and wanted to live by myself, I uh, was terrified, and I took all the knives and things I could use as weapons and was placing them sporadically throughout my house, and I forgot about them. Because luckily I never had to use them, right? And so so maybe it was just subconsciously me knowing that they're there brought me some comfort too. But it was just funny how when when I was packing up to move, I was just finding all these random things and places. And, it, you know, but, but it's what I had to do. It's where I was in that moment and I had to do it then.
0: I like that you can look back and laugh at that now because I'm sure people listening will be like, oh, but it's you're right. It is the subconscious comfort and we all do this naturally. This is something that we, especially living alone, you have your creature of comfort. Like you just do things naturally and things need to be a specific way for a reason. Now, safety is the utmost importance after trauma. Um, what are some things and conversations that you've had with people are ways that we can learn to really feel safe again, either in our space and our body? What have you seen and heard?
1: Wow, that's a good question. Um, I, I, I guess it kind of goes back to you know what my therapist was telling me of how you know, I have to regain control, but it's okay to take those baby steps, right? So people want to say, I've got this big house and I should feel safe in that big house. Don't look at it like that. Pick a room and start with a room and feel safe in that room and, and, and let that safety and that security grow. And same with people, you know, I, I learned that I um, never knew a stranger, you know, and that was one thing that everyone loved about me. And that's how I have the friends that I have. But then when I was going to that dark phase of my life, after my attack, everyone, even myself was a stranger. And so what I had to learn to teach myself is it's okay to have boundaries with people that they don't have to know everything at first and, and to even to listen, You know, once I became more aware of myself, I was able to listen to other people talk and watch other people's body language and think and realize that they've been through something too. And, you know, it's like I think about there was always, there was always like I, I go to the bartending thing quite often because there's so many different kinds of kinds, right? And so there was this woman that would come in and she would never smile. And she was a good tipper, but she wasn't conversational. And, you know, and I was always like, you know, is is she just, does she think she's better than everybody? Because she was always very well presented. You know, it it is, she's just kind of bitchy, you know? And, 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 and then looking at, I was never rude to her because she never gave me a reason to be, but I always wondered, like, do you look down on me because I'm a bartender? And, but thinking of her now, she probably has just been through something. And, and her coming to that bar and having that moment with her glass of wine was probably a big deal and big step for her. And she doesn't owe it to me to tell me anything. She was nice. She paid her bill. She tipped me accordingly. That's, that was her job. That, that was it, you know, and, and that is okay. And I had to learn how to kind of become that woman and you know like that woman and 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 have those boundaries and and to believe that that was okay
0: it's always so interesting to hear how our perspectives have changed before and after it's it's so eye-opening and everything is so 180 and you just look at people and situations it's like there was almost a lens before and now you see 150 million different possibilities and scenarios of every little interaction of every person that you meet and I think it's actually beautiful now it feels strange saying that because never in a million years is what had happened to us kind and beautiful But the way that I love, the way that I trust people, the way that I just live now is a million times better and more fulfilling. And I am more grateful than I would have been before. And I can see that with you too. And I want to ask you, how did you learn to really trust people again? (laughs) Ooh,
1: <laughs> that one's a hard one because I don't, I don't know that I do. I, I know that it's a process, right? Like I have to really make sure that, I mean, it has to be on my list of goals that to remind myself that not every person is bad and that people can be trusted. I have to give myself those pep talks, you know? And, and then I've got to pat myself on the back for it when I accomplish it. I do have trust issues, 100% I do. But I don't, I'm not mad at myself for having trust issues. I know that I am giving everyone the benefit of the doubt. And that I'm giving everyone that chance to prove that they're worth being trusted. So, because I know that in the beginning, you know, David, in the beginning, before all this, um, trusted everybody. He didn't know hate. And then it got to that dark place where he trusted nobody, not even his own mother. You know, my own mother was going to kill me in my sleep, I thought. You know? And, And then now that I'm at a more level place, I start to meet people and immediately will want to think, okay, look for all the bad signs, look for, look for the red flags. And that's not how I want to grow a relationship with someone. I want to give them the, the, the chance to show me that they're worth trusting and and as they give, I give. It's just not a free thing anymore.
0: It's become a very sacred part of you. And I completely understand that. The second that you said, I don't trust people, (laughs) I was like, Amen. Because it seems as if I trust people. I'm kind to people. I'm loving. I will so make new friends easily. That doesn't necessarily mean that I trust them. It just means that I can accept people in my space. There's a really big difference from being friendly and accepting and trusting someone. And the biggest thing that this entire journey has taught me is that my my love, my trust, my intimacy, every part of me that I want to give to someone, it takes a lot because it's sacred and I think that when we do finally let the people in and we do build that trust it means so much more to us and I would love to hear a little bit about your relationship and how that's going and just how you two of the couple because I'm sure you're still going through your healing process. And a lot of people struggle with that where they say, well, I can't be with someone until I'm healed. We know that there's no end date. We know that healing is a forever work in progress. So I would love to hear about how you worked on that as a couple. Yeah.
1: So um, my partner's name is Cody. We've been together for, you know, four years and he's my heart. He's the cutest, sweetest thing. He's, sometimes I even get nervous because he reminds me a lot of who the old David used to be. Like, he's just so giving. And so, you know, he's in the medical field and so he, he just naturally just wants to care and, and he, he will give out food and, and like he, nobody around him is ever going to want for anything, you know? When, when he and I, uh, the first time we met, I lived um, in this apartment complex that was across the street from a bowling alley. And we, uh, a group of friends and I would go um, every Monday, we would go bowling. It was like dollar night or something. And um, they had like a fun little bar in there. And I literally could just walk across the street. And so that's what I did. And so I went and met my friends. And this guy walked in. And I told one of my girlfriends, I said, I want to marry that dude that just walked in. And she said, you know Cody? And I said, you know him? And she was like, yeah, he's here with us. I was like, oh, I just thought he was cute. I've never seen the dude before in my life. And we hit it off. You know, I jokingly just saw a cute boy and was like, I want to marry him. You know, and now here we are engaged. <laughs> but, um, you know, he came over and was bowling with us. And then when we went to leave, you know, I had walked over and it was raining. And so he drove me home and, and we stayed up talking all night. I, I told him everything about me and the do's and don'ts and, and the shoulda, coulda, wouldas and all that. And um, and he did the same and we've not left each other's side. And and I really think that with him being in the medical field, I think that that plays a factor because he is so nourishing and nourishing to me. Um, and his, He comes from a a family that has uh, mental health knowledge and medical field knowledge. But but I think that that really played into a factor. I found someone that was able to understand me and was willing to learn the good and the bad. You know, Um, there are times that Cody could touch me one night and I will freak out. And have to sleep with a pillow between us. He could touch me again like that the next night. And it could be the most amazing touch. You know, it, you, you can't ever just say that this this touch is a trigger. It's kind of in how your day was that day. You know, it, you, you don't know how you're going to feel in something until it's almost too late. Until it's done and you felt it. And then you have to just choose how to react to it he um he listens to me and one of the of the obstacles that we've had is he would listen to me but i forgot that even though he was on a part of of my life at my attack he is still a victim of my attacker's actions because of how that has damaged me and hurt me and and it took me a little while to realize that and that even though he was listening to me and my triggers i still had to listen to him and how my triggers were affecting him and and that that was a lesson that i'm so glad that i learned but it was a rude awakening because i i didn't think about that you know
0: it really goes to show that there is a cycle that needs to be broken. Because very easily you could not realize that and you could not have those hard conversations together and not have that, you know, almost rude awakening being like, oh, like it doesn't just stop when it stops right. it. You have to make it stop. You have to actively choose to stop the cycle and break the cycle, especially if, you know, the two of you decide in your relationship, okay, like maybe we we'll want to have children it, then It's another degree of separation from the trauma, but it could be another leg of the cycle should it not be broken. And that's exactly what my story is. I'm the next generation of the trauma just coming out and the cycle wasn't broken. And that's something that you and I deeply share is we refuse and are going to do everything in our power to be the ones to finally break that cycle. And... I think it's extremely important for people to realize what you just said exactly. When you're in a relationship with someone who has gone through something traumatic, then that traumatic experience bleeds out into all of your other relationships, them included. And that makes it hard for the person who has gone through the trauma to come to terms with And then need to adjust their reactions and emotions accordingly too, because we're still learning how to deal with our own, but we so badly love you and don't want you to become now a victim of our own trauma and make the abuse go on and on. But it's such a work in progress. And if you have two people that are willing to work on it together, it creates this bond that is unmatched. And I'm so grateful that you have found somebody. I am so happy for you. Congratulations on being engaged. It's like you are proof that it's possible, that life is still possible.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you. Thank you so much. If there's any advice that I can give to anybody, and it's going to sound like such a cliche, but when I learned to enjoy the ride, I started healing in such a different way. You know, and and I know that people I've had listeners even email me and say, "How can you say enjoy the ride?" like but but the thing is is you know when you get on a roller coaster and you've gotten on that and I know that I've done this. I've gotten on a roller coaster before because I've wanted to because all my other friends wanted to and I wanted to be cool in front of them. And I'm terrified, but I'm faking a smile and I'm holding on as hard as I can. And, you know, as a couple of seconds into it, you're like, why the hell did I do this? Why did I do this? And then that moment that you just let your hands go and you say, you know what? This is where I'm at right now. And then you just feel free. That's the best way for me to describe it is when I woke up from my attack and was told what had happened to me was told that I had an STD because of someone putting their body inside of me unwelcomingly. (laughs) Luckily, it was, you know, a curable one, but still, um, that my home had been invaded, that my car had been stolen, that someone had my banking account information, that someone went to a bar covered in my blood, thinking they killed someone. Because you got to think, for 28 hours, 27 hours, I think they said, he thought he had killed me you know and and i people ask me how can you enjoy that but it's not that i'm enjoying that it's that i'm on a roller coaster ride called life <laughs> and i can either white knuckle it and cry and scream the whole way or i can just let go and and it feels good to just let go
0: surrendering has been the most healing thing i've done in my entire life Surrendering to any emotions, surrendering to any process, surrendering to just what happens instead of resisting is where I have grown and become more of who I am meant to be. Yeah. David, thank you for this. I cannot express enough gratitude for you to share this face with me and share your story where can everyone find you on social media? Yeah,
1: And thank you, Danny. Like I said, you're one of my favorites. So I hope, I hope that relationship isn't over. Um, but I would love for people to check out my show. Um, the best landing page uh, or landing spot is my website. It's um, surviving podcast.com. It's got all my social medias. I'm on every uh, podcast platform. We're in well into second season. Now there's uh, some fun guest surprises in there and some fun little things and and if anyone has a story they want to share or even just to call in to give some helpful tips and hints to people um, who are also battling like I would love that